Welcome everyone. I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to the support of Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobook selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I often use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is either a book I personally read or listened to through Audible and I thoroughly enjoyed it. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and regardless if you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a pretty good deal, so visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Stay tuned after the show where I will give you my audiobook recommendation. My second announcement is Patreon. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. We also have an event coming up in February, honoring the 76th anniversary of Iwo Jima. Details are currently on Patreon, and I'll post this on social media as we get closer, but holy crap, if there is one historical monument to support, this is it. This monument was built for Iwo Jima survivors by Iwo Jima survivors. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. I'll include a link in the podcast description as well. Thanks for your time, and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 55 of History of the Marine Corps. Archibald Henderson leads Marines into battle. Last week's episode covered the first war between the United States and the Southern Tribes. This was a violent time between the two nations. We discussed a few massacres, unfair treaties by the United States, and events leading to Archibald Henderson and the Marines' eventual participation with the Seminoles in the Southeast. This episode gets into Archibald Henderson and the Marines' involvement in Florida. We look at Henderson's decision to include the Marines, President Andrew Jackson's decision to bring in the Marines, and a couple of actual battles between the Marines and the Seminoles. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The ambush and slaughter of Major Dade and his men marked the beginning of the Second Seminole War. Osceola continued his mission of killing settlers. In the same afternoon of Dade's ambush, Seminoles killed Indian agent Wiley Thompson, who was responsible for removing the Seminoles from Florida, and Lieutenant Constantine Smith, who was with him. Later that day, 
Erastus Rogers, a civilian who sold provisions to soldiers, was attacked and killed. On December 31, 1835, three days after this murder, Osceola led an attack against the U.S. Army at the Battle of Withlacoochee. General Duncan Clinch of the U.S. Army led a force of 750 to Indian settlements on the Withlacoochee River, known as the Cove. General Richard Keith Call, commander of the Florida militia, supported Clinch's forces. At the time, Clinch was not aware of Dade's ambush, and he thought the Seminoles wouldn't attack such a large force. He was wrong. As he and his men marched up the river, gunshots and war calls were heard in the distance. Osceola stood at the front of his force and advanced towards the Americans. Lieutenant Colonel W.J. Mills of the Florida Militia described the battle. Quote, Colonel Warren and myself immediately formed and extended our line from the river out through the swamp to the Pine Barren and saw the regular troops on our right boldly engaged with at least 300 Indians who were ordered to remain stationary and prevent the Indians entering our lines. After repeated solicitations on the part of Colonel Warren and myself, we took the responsibility on ourselves, and Colonel Warren led the right to the left of the regulars, and I was stationed on the left of our own line. When a charge was made, which after about 10 minutes more of sharp fighting, forced them to retreat and the battle ended. Unquote. The Americans were able to cause around 80 seminal casualties. However, one-third of U.S. forces experienced casualties during this battle. On January 4, 1836, Seminoles attacked the home of a lightkeeper, William Cooley. While tending to the Cape Florida lighthouse, Seminoles murdered his wife, three children, and the children's tutor. After the attacks, Congress reassessed their position on Seminole relations and determined they had no other option but to forcefully react to the Seminole tribe's threat to the local U.S. population. They appropriated $600 to the war and deployed naval forces to the area. The U.S. Army was responsible for the protection against Native Americans, but the escalation of organized attacks and new tactics changed the scenario. Native Americans used guerrilla warfare tactics, something that U.S. forces weren't used to and would continue to have problems with during recent conflicts, specifically the Vietnam War. In response to the increased attacks, the U.S. Army requested additional U.S. Navy support. The deployment of a naval force to the Gulf of Mexico meant the involvement of United States Marines. It wasn't as simple as sending additional forces to the South. The Navy was a moderately small force of 785 officers and 3,627 sailors. Naturally, the Marine Corps was even smaller, with a force of 58 officers and 1,177 enlisted. The Navy and the Marine Corps weren't waiting idly by until the Army needed them. They had their own mission of crewing 18 ships and sailing the seven seas in five squadrons. At the time, the U.S. Naval and Marine forces was small and had few reserves. But after Dade's massacre, the fort was significantly understaffed, 
and with the defeat of Clinch's army, they had little hope of gaining new reinforcements anytime soon. The acting governor of Florida, George K. Walker, requested a flotilla to protect the shores and rivers of West Florida. Master Commandant Thomas T. Webb of the U.S. Navy took his sloop of war, Vandalia, to Florida with two officers and 29 sailors and marines. He also had some light artillery on board. He was given the command to scout the shoreline and find any Native Americans traveling the waterways by canoe. If he should encounter them, they were taken into protective custody. If they were hostile, they would be captured or destroyed. His orders also warned them about Spain supplying weapons to the enemy, and if they were to spot any Spanish vessel that seemed suspicious, they had the permission to investigate the ship. To reinforce Fort Brooke, a contingent of 57 Marines, led by Lieutenant Nathaniel S. Waldron, were sent to reinforce. Lieutenant Waldron and his Marines were assigned to Major General Edmund P. Gaines. They helped track down Native American camps along the shore, and in some places up to 10 miles inland. The scouting mission wasn't too successful, but they did determine that Native Americans were headed south. Archibald Henderson felt that the Marines could change the success of the United States against the Seminoles. He always had confidence that the Marines were the force needed for the United States in the time of crisis. Henderson's view of the Marine Corps changed the traditional role of a Marine. Before Henderson, Marines were responsible for maintaining order and discipline on ships and guarding Navy yards and bases on shore. During combat at sea, Marines served in the ship's riggings and other locations that allowed them to use their marksmanship skills at enemy officers and gunners. Marines were also posted at ship's hatchways, to prevent sailors from abandoning their battle stations to seek safety below deck. With the adoption of new naval regulations that minimized the threat of desertion and mutiny, the use of naval weapons that increased the range of attack, and the addition of stronger armor on naval warships, many of the Marine Corps' original roles became outdated. Henderson understood these changes would eventually lead to questioning the role of a Marine, and he changed the direction of the Marine Corps. He fought for Marines to be assigned to the ship's main batteries, enhanced Marines' proficiencies fighting on land, and developed new strategies that involved collaboration with the U.S. Army. During the War of 1812, Henderson continued to improve the United States Marine Corps' reputation. One trait that stood out between the Marines and other military branches was their bravery. The Marines serving during the War of 1812 were effective fighters. It was undeniable that the small force of Marines provided more resistance to Great Britain than the U.S. Army. Utilizing Marines in this capacity wasn't necessarily a new thing. When the Marine Corps was re-established in 1798, Congress outlined the service in the Act. And in 1834, Congress passed an act for the better organization of the United States Marine Corps, which outlined their service on land as well. The Marine Corps didn't seek out service on land. In fact, many Marines were against it. But in the 1830s, questions about why the United States needed the Marine Corps started to come up. Andrew Jackson was frugal, 
and the argument on the purpose of the Marine Corps started to come up. It's a question that has reared its head many times. If we have a Navy and an Army, what's the point of the Marines? Henderson understood the value of the Marine Corps, and he saw the Indian Wars as an opportunity to showcase the effectiveness of Marines. We will see more of Henderson's vision of the Marine Corps come to fruition during the Mexican-American War, but the Second Creek and Seminole Wars saw the transition of a Marine's role from strictly supporting the U.S. Navy to what we see today. For six months, the U.S. Army failed to resist the Seminoles in Florida and Georgia. While the War Department was looking for ways to further enhance the Army in the South, Archibald Henderson used this opportunity to argue the Marine Corps' use. On May 21, 1836, Archibald Henderson volunteered his Marines for service in Georgia. Knowing the President's view on excessive cost, he argued that the use of Marines would save the government money. This argument was successful, and President Andrew Jackson accepted Archibald Henderson's offer of a regiment to assist in the fighting against Native Americans in the Southeast. Andrew Jackson ordered Henderson and his Marines to team up with Brigadier General Thomas Jessup's army at Fort Mitchell, Alabama. Henderson was extremely critical of his predecessor, Franklin Wharton, who was more on the sidelines and didn't directly fight alongside his Marines. Henderson wasn't about to miss the opportunity and assigned himself to lead the regiment against Native Americans. He only left a sergeant's guard at each Navy yard and mustered 36 officers and 400 enlisted to travel south. Three days after Jackson's approval, Henderson reported to the War Department for duty. A month later, after marching 224 miles in 14 days, the Marines arrived in Columbus, Georgia, to fight against the Creeks. A week later, on July 1st, the 2nd Battalion of Marines, under Lieutenant Colonel W.M.H. Freeman, joined Archibald Henderson and his forces near Columbus, Georgia. But by the time the Marines arrived, there was relatively little action in the area. Marines spent most of their time guarding supply convoys and stagecoach way stations. Archibald Henderson was disappointed in the lack of action, and he was ready to bring the Marines home and assign them back to their, quote, legitimate duties, unquote, as described by Henderson. But the Army needed the support, and they weren't ready for the Marines to be sent home. The Marines were a welcome addition to the fight. Despite seeing little action, their camp discipline was far superior to the Army's, and their hygiene was impeccable which resulted in minimal outbreaks of disease typically seen in military camps. Towards the end of 1836, Marines would begin to engage the Seminoles alongside the Army. On November 17, 1836, Marines attached to the Army discovered a Seminole camp. The U.S. forces attacked the camp and drove the Seminoles out of the area. The total of Seminole casualties isn't known, but 20 were confirmed killed and, quote, in wounded, the enemy must have suffered severely, unquote. The army had one killed and ten wounded. The U.S. force would continue to track down Seminoles, burn camps, and the Native Americans would flee. The Seminoles would eventually lead the army and Marines to the swamps to fight. 
While the Native Americans navigated the terrain through well-established trails, U.S. forces waded through waist-deep mud and water. The Seminoles would periodically charge U.S. forces. During these skirmishes, the casualty rate wasn't detrimental to either side, but the Seminoles did start to get the upper hand on the Army and the Marines. General Jessup received orders from the Secretary of War to move his main forces against the Seminoles. Jessup learned that the Seminoles' main force was settled in the Great Cypress Swamp, along the Hatchie-Lusty River, and sent part of his force to attack. The force consisted of Army soldiers, Marines, Georgia volunteers, and Native American allies. Archibald Henderson led this force. On January 27th, Henderson and his troops attacked the camp. U.S. forces captured some of the women and children, escaped slaves, and many Seminole supplies. However, the Seminole warriors fled into the swamps. Henderson ordered his Marines to go after the fleeing Seminole warriors, and the Marines immediately pursued the Native Americans. The Marines tracked down the Seminoles through the swamp, across the Hatchie-Lusty River, and through an even larger swamp, but the terrain became increasingly difficult to traverse. In Henderson's official report, he stated, quote, The regular troops, both artillery and Marines, displayed great bravery and the most untiring and determined perseverance. The Marines, however, I cannot refrain from mentioning in a particular manner. The killed and wounded show where they were and render any further comment from the unnecessary, unquote. Two non-commissioned officers and four privates died during this engagement. With the Seminoles on the run and the Marines chasing them down, Jessup sent a message to the Seminole chiefs with an offer of a treaty. The messenger returned two days later with Chiefs Jumper and Alligator, two sub-chiefs, and a fifth representative. They agreed to meet and discuss a peace treaty. Major Morris defeated the Seminoles' army's main force near a stream in the middle of the swamp. The Seminoles attempted to fight back, but U.S. forces and their allies were too strong, and the Seminoles fled. In charge of the Native American Allied forces, Captain Morris advanced on the retreating Seminoles, followed by Captain Harris, Lieutenant Surly, Lieutenant Chambers, and Lieutenant Lee, who was in the process of swimming over to the advancing party. The Seminoles took multiple stands against the advancing Marines, but they weren't strong enough to defend their positions and ended up fleeing. After the Battle of Hatchie Lusty, the Marines continued patrolling the local Seminole camps, but they saw little action. In March 1837, conflicts between the U.S. and Seminole tribes were limited. The U.S. Army concluded that the war was coming to an end, despite more than a thousand Seminoles still in the area. Archibald Henderson came to the same conclusion, and he decided not to replace Marines whose enlistment terms had ended or the Marines who died during their time in the Southeast. On March 6, 1837, Seminole chiefs and the United States signed an agreement, which ended the Seminoles' war. The treaty called for the hostilities between the U.S. and Native Americans to stop immediately. All Seminoles were to leave the Southeast and proceed past the Mississippi, and the nation would provide hostages to ensure the Native Americans stick to the agreement.
Shortly after the two nations signed the document, Marines started to leave the area. On March 26, the Marine detachment of the U.S. Sloop Concorde returned from Florida. The U.S. Sloop Vandalia received her Marines from Fort Brooke on May 19th, and the U.S. Sloop St. Louis received her Marines 10 days later. On May 22, 1837, Archibald Henderson was recalled to Washington to resume his duties as Commandant. General Jessup issued the following order, quote, The presence of Colonel Henderson is being required at the headquarters of his corps. He will proceed to Washington City and report to the Adjutant General of the Army. The Major General commanding would be forgetful of what is due to merit and would do injustice to his own feelings were he to omit on the present occasion the expression of the high sense he entertains of the distinguished and valuable service rendered by the colonel. He tenders him his warmest thanks for the able, zealous, and cheerful support he has on every occasion received from him, both in Florida and Alabama, and begs him to accept his best wishes for his future fame and happiness." Unquote. On May 23rd, Colonel Henderson and part of his staff left Florida to return to Washington. He left Lieutenant Colonel Miller as the senior Marine officer in charge. Henderson arrived back in Washington about a year after he left. Although many of his Marines stayed with Jessup and Miller in Florida, their actions in the Southeast preceded them. The country commended the Marines for their performance in the Southern states. The National Intelligencer reported, quote, we are glad to learn that Colonel Henderson and the officers accompanying him have returned to their families in good health. They have suffered much in common with all with whom they have served, not less from the climate and the peculiar nature of the country, which has been the theater of the war, than from the necessary hardships of the service in so wild and destitute a region. The gallant corps, which it is the good fortune of Colonel Henderson to command, has always been distinguished, wheresoever duty has called it. In the present case, the Corps deserves peculiar commendation from having volunteered in the War of Florida. Its commander deserves the praise of having proven himself worthy of his post, both by his gallantry in the field and by patience and good example under all difficulties. And he, his officers, and men have most honorably maintained the pledge which they gave to the government and to their country when they first tendered their services. The Corps remains in Florida, under the veteran and gallant Colonel Miller, to make farther sacrifices and endure fresh hardships. Unquote. On June 15th, the Army and Navy Chronicle stated, quote, The Marine Corps has been so much separated for a year or more past that we have not had it in our powers to make any report of the changes that have occurred in the stations of its officers. We are rejoiced to perceive that this Corps has been earning a harvest of fame in Florida by the alacrity, zeal, and ability with which the duties assigned to it have been discharged, and we welcome back to their homes and to comparative repose those members of it who have been so long actively engaged in combating the savages, unquote. But despite the warm welcome in D.C. and the peace treaty signed by the Seminole chiefs, 
the Marines and Army in the Southeast were still experiencing attacks from Native Americans. Granted, they weren't as aggressive as previous raids, but Marines were still trying to track down and stop Seminole forces. To compensate for the remaining Native American attacks, a Mosquito Fleet was established. The fleet was made up of multiple smaller U.S. boats, with an even larger number of canoes. Navy Lieutenant J.I. McLaughlin commanded the fleet, along with the force of 130 United States Marines. Seminoles were fleeing into the heart of the Everglades, and the main objective of the Mosquito Fleet was to chase after them. At the time, the Everglades was an unknown territory. Few Americans explored the area. But this didn't matter to the Marines, and they headed into the unknown terrain to fulfill their mission. Thanks for listening. Although the war is considered to be officially over, Marines and sailors assigned to the Mosquito Fleet would continue to have skirmishes and track down Seminoles seeking shelter in the Everglades. Next week, we'll take a look at a few of these skirmishes, briefly cover the Indian Wars for years to come, and conclude with some statistics about the war. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill with Dan Pippenbring. I'm typically skeptical of conspiracy theories, but that doesn't mean I believe conspiracy theories don't exist. I think the person who doesn't believe in any conspiracy theories is just as wrong as a person who believes every conspiracy theory on the internet. The United States history has proven that past leadership would go to great lengths to deceive the citizens of this country. From the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where government officials distorted facts and deceived the American public about events that led to full U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, to Operation Northwoods, where the U.S. government planned to fake terrorist attacks on the U.S. as an attempt to justify military intervention in Cuba. It's naive to think that conspiracies don't exist. And this book highlights another groundbreaking conspiracy you don't hear too much about. Tom O'Neill spent over 20 years researching Charles Manson and the CIA. Through interviews and documents provided by the LAPD, FBI, and the CIA, O'Neill has produced a strong argument on the CIA's involvement of mind control through the use of psychedelic drugs. If I lost some of you during that last statement, I understand entirely. It sounds like something out of a Hollywood movie, but the CIA did just that, and a secret program declassified by the CIA called MKUltra. This book follows the timeline and events of Charles Manson, the CIA, and the connections leading to the infamous murder by the Manson family. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. Visit the link in the description to visit our page. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. 
We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.